the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. Then we'd all sort of cheer up. Nothing's gonna stop us now, lads. We're going straight to the top. The toppermost of the poppermost. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thanks for sticking around with us. Welcome to the very first official episode of Toppermost of the Poppermost. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. Hopefully you know us from our other shows. This is our new project. It is going to be a monthly show, and it's going to cover the Beatles and Friends on both the British and the American charts. And we'll be uh, talking about the Beatles, not only their songs, but songs that were on the charts at the same time and artists that uh, have connections to the Beatles. Yep, those connections could be as close or as tenuous as we feel. They could be people who the Beatles knew, people who the Beatles had toured with. Give you a bit of a hint for somebody later on there, or that they appeared on stage with, and... Well, anyone that George Martin even produced, for instance. And the other Brian Epstein acts. We can't forget them. Were most of those produced by George? Eh, most of them. I don't all. Well, I know all of them weren't. But anyway, so, well, why are we starting in October of 1962? October of 1962 was a momentous month for our boys. Love Me Do had been released and just managed to start its climb up the British charts. Yep, it was their big debut, and, you know, it wasn't a huge, huge hit for them in relation, obviously, to their next hit, but it was a good start. I mean, it was a solid start for them and their debut, and when you look at, and we'll go into this into detail on this later on, but when you look at their hit as opposed to what else was on the charts at the time, you could really see why they stood out. Yep, and also not too shabby in the fact that they actually went on to the top 50 upon the week of release of the single as well, which is quite something. Yeah, for a brand new band, absolutely. And for a first single. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was EMI doing? I, you know, we, we read a little bit, but it seems to me like the promotion engine was turned sort of midway on this record. You know, they wanted, they certainly wanted it to come out and to be a hit, but it's not like they had this huge confidence that these four scruffs from Liverpool were going to really do anything on the charts. Yeah. I mean, I, you don't really hear about this massive publicity campaign. Now they were on the road quite a bit, you know, if you're just looking at this specific time period, October through December, I mean, they were playing, you know, at the Cavern. Then in November, they were playing in Hamburg quite a bit. Again, in December around Liverpool. So, I mean, they were playing a lot of live dates. But other than that, I mean, they had a few radio appearances from what I can tell, but that's about it. I mean, it doesn't seem like, you know, there was 
that much marketing done unless unless I'm wrong. Yeah, well, there, there's that, and as you mentioned, you know, they had two fairly lengthy Hamburg stents. I mean, not lengthy like the old days. We're talking weeks rather than months, mm-hmm. but still, the song was out. The song was on, moving up the charts, and the Beatles were a country away. Well, the thing is that they'd already got these uh, these already booked beforehand. So Brian Epstein, being the the sort of person that gentleman that he is, he was just saying to them that they had these commitments and they had to do them. And he was just that sort of person that said that you have to do these things if you've arranged them. Oh, I'm, I'm not saying it's a negative yeah. thing. No. I'm just sort of saying that, you know, we talk about where did it go on the charts and, you know, why why did it sort of stall out eventually in the lower half of the top 20? Well, they weren't there to really promote this thing as hard as they really would have liked to. But as, as Kit, Kit sort of said earlier on, I mean, what weren't the actual... Uh, any of the sessions on the radio, would they have been really good promotion? I would have thought that they'd pre-recorded before they'd actually gone to Hamburg. Uh, I mean, that certainly was some promotion. The TV appearance uh, where they played Love Me Do, People in Places, that was only aired in the north of England. That was not a nationwide show. Mm. Okay. Mm. Oh, interesting. And it doesn't exist anymore. In December, they appeared on Discs A Go Go, Tuesday Rendezvous. Looking at anything else that looks like a. Well, nonetheless, we'll get back to that. But anyway, there's a famous rumor about Love Me Do, and let's talk about that a little bit. A lot of people think the only reason Love Me Do got as high in the charts as it did is because, well, Brian was a record store owner. Brian supposedly bought bunches and bunches of copies and you know as john lennon put it a lot of people think it was a fiddle (laughs) yes (laughs) yet this was a long-held rumor in 63 in fact uh, yeah john lennon talked about said the best thing was it came into the charts in two days and everybody thought it was a fiddle because our manager stores sent uh, send in these what are they record things returns and everybody down south thought, aha, he's buying them himself or he's just fiddling the charts, but he wasn't. And they denied it. I was just thinking about this. Another thing that contributed to the single success, though, is people like our good friend Frida Kelly. You know, she and, and other fans of Liverpool, I think I remember her talking about this. They really rallied the Liverpoolians, you know, the fans and everything to get out there and buy these records. Did Brian Epstein buy all these copies? Oh, I think he certainly bought a bunch of copies. He probably did. But there was also huge demand for it in Liverpool. Exactly. And, I mean, they had rabid fans. I mean, no doubt about it. And and Frida Kelly talked about it. I mean, they practically had a campaign to, you know, call into the radio stations and request the song and everything. So, I mean, there may be some truth to this. There probably is. But it wasn't just that. Yeah, I like Frida's comment that uh, she, she, on like the first day she went into NIMS and bought a copy, even though she didn't have a record player at home. <laughs> well, as the title of the documentary says, good old Frida. <laughs> Love it. She's great. This was a real interesting month for the Beatles, and it's 
good to see where they started from. You know, they weren't, nobody knew what the future was at this point in time. They were just sort of sitting there and hoping on this record. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing to point out that this was a very, very respectable showing for a brand new band for a first single. They weren't an instant number one success. I mean, like you said, the Beatles, right at this moment, they were just a band, you know, trying to make it. And this was a very good start. But as you said, they had a lot riding on this record. And George said later that it was their calling card. It became their calling card. As he put it, the next time we went back to EMI, they were more friendly (laughs) after this success. Uh, Martin, you got any thoughts on Love Me Do before we move on to some of the other things which were in the charts over these months? I couldn't find any more. Like you said, I couldn't find any more details about any promotion that they were doing. And it's strange also that I don't think that chart shows actually played top 50 back then. I think they just played like the top 30 on radio stations for the chart shows. So how would it have been played if it, unless it was just played on the radio under normal radio station playlist? I don't know. You know, the BBC had specified times that they would play discs and uh, you know one thing we haven't mentioned is at that point in time the bbc was very heavily under needle drop time you could only play records for so many hours out of the day so you know if, if love me do got played as the record once or twice a week that was doing good yeah, because you wouldn't actually have the Radio 1 or Radio 2. You wouldn't have that back then. That didn't come for a number of years. All that you would have had then, other than the BBC, would have been what was known as pirate radio stations playing songs sure. like well, that. And the, the pirates were illegal. weren't there yet. The pirates started yeah. in 64. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm. Yeah. Which makes the, the radio shows that they didn't get to do during that latter half of 62 even more important because... You know, they could they could go on the radio and play the song on any place that would book them, but no, they were off in Germany for two, two and a half, three weeks out of that three month period. Wow. Wow. So so it's yeah, so it's amazing it did as well as it did. I think picking that song specifically was really clever because it's got a lot of hallmarks from around that time, you know. So you've got the the, the harmonica, for instance, that is mm-hmm. very reminiscent of of songs previously as well. It's it's got it's almost like a safe song that sort of like fits with a lot of what was going on in some ways on the charts anyway. It's, it's got that you know sing along quality. Got it has that chorus, easy to remember. Definitely has that catchiness. So absolutely, I mean, it, it had, you know, it had hit written all over it. In retrospect, looking at it from where we are, it was kind of the perfect first Beatles record. You know, how do you do it? Well, that wouldn't have yeah. been. No, I mean, it just didn't even sound like them. I mean, it, I mean, it was a good record. I mean, you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers did a great job with it and it had a big hit with it. I mean, I can see why George Martin thought, okay, this is a surefire hit and, and you know, perfect pop record, but it just didn't suit the Beatles. I mean, it just wasn't them, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I've listened to the Beatles version, and you, you know what some people say about their version is. Some people say that it's like they're not trying at all. I actually don't think it's that bad an attempt that they made, but it just doesn't sound Beatles. Right. Exactly. It's it's hard to describe why, but it just doesn't suit well, them. Well, it, it it did just it just didn't light their fire. Yeah. You know how do you do it? Was well, and they were playing off of a, this demo that was by, well, Dave Clark. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so, that's right. It's the, I would say that the better record is the one which would actually become the hit eventually. But we'll get there. Yep. We're jumping ahead. We're jumping yeah. ahead a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, it's It'll hard happen. for us to just sort of sit in this one place, and we have to, we have to make an effort to actually try and do so. Rain it in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so on to some of the other charts. Looking at the British charts, number three on the week of October the 11th was Sheila by Tommy Rowe. mostly know that song because the Beatles played it in the Hamburg set. And of course, the first time I heard it for years, I thought it was Buddy Holly. Well, it's, <laughs> it is it is blatantly a Buddy Holly ripoff. Well, it sure is. I mean, wow, is it ever. I mean, he, imitating the, the Buddy Holly hiccup. Never knew a girl like a little Sheila Her name drives me insane Sweet little girl, that's my little Sheila Man, this little girl is fine The drum pattern, everything. I mean, it is definitely, shall we say, Buddy Holly influenced. Would that make two Buddy Holly sounding songs on the charts that day, one of them actually being Mr. Holly? One of, one of them actually yes. being Buddy, yep. Which the Beatles also covered. <laughs> yep. And the other thing about Sheila, Tommy Rowe in particular, a few short months later, when the Beatles started doing their national tours, the theater tours, who were they were behind? They were behind Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe. Yes, indeed. So see how this show is going to go? The connections are endless. <laughs> and we won't get into it here, but there, there are famous stories of... Uh, John Lennon being disagreeable with Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe on the tour bus. and <laughs> We'll run that story one of these days, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if we want to jump ahead to this, but uh, Let's Dance has actually been one of my favorites, actually, from this period. That's still a great record, I think. I mean, it's it's a fun record. It's not groundbreaking in any way uh except i actually should take that back a little bit because chris montez did 
mix in, you know, that Latin influence with pop, kind of picking up from where, you know, Richie Havens uh, left off. And, uh, you know, it's a just a very danceable record that uh, sort of, you know, organ sound on it. Love the, you know, strong beat to it. Just a fun record. Well, and there was significant thought before there was a Mersey beat. It's like, oh, this Latin beat is going to take over. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the next big thing. Exactly. Didn't quite happen, but, but as I said, that's that's a record I, I still like. Didn't the Beatles attempt Let's, Let's Dance at one point? sure if it was was it during the get back? get back thing yes yeah i think yes. john started it in the joined in i think you are right points to you martin very good <laughs> wow and i'm the one ding, who ding, knows ding. the least out of all of us <laughs> i'm the one here to learn wow <laughs> very impressive what we're going to discover is that the beatles heard these songs and they remembered them you know, because we know that everything came back during Get Back, but like, where were these songs? Where did they come from? They were on the charts while they were running around, while they were doing their own thing. They heard these records and they remembered chords and they remembered lyrics, maybe not perfectly, but that just shows you how their brains worked. I've always said they were like sponges. I mean, they really were. They incorporated so many different genres into their music, and definitely we're going to find this uh, as we go along uh, uh, with this show. Uh, so many different artists, so many different styles. And, you know, good point, is, as Martin just showed us, they remembered Let's Dance years later and played it a bit during those sessions. They did, but but like a lot of us, they didn't remember what was at number five. <laughs> yeah, it's, ah. uh, it's Elvis. It's not one of Elvis's bigger hits, and that's probably with good reason. Elvis, after the Army, uh, the Beatles were on TV, and John was commenting about how uh, they didn't much care for Elvis's tunes anymore. He's still a great singer, but they didn't care for what the songs he was doing, um, you know, hit or miss. Yeah, it was one of those songs that you may not remember the title, and then you start listening to it and like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember this. And Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a callback to his early work in that it, it has a little bit, bit of a little country influence to it, but it's, yeah. It's a very croony record. It's, it's almost yes. like a Bing Crosby record. Yeah, yeah, which kind of makes sense with what was popular at the time because we'll find some other croony stuff uh, as we go along with other songs that were hot at the time. So it kind of makes sense that he would do a croony record. Yeah, not one of his most memorable. Whispering your name She even kisses me like you used to do 
And it's just breaking my heart Cause she's not you Moving on, an artist who we will talk about much more next time Frank Ifield was actually around in Liverpool and he was actually a much bigger star than the Beatles were at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll talk much more about uh, his Beatles connections um, later, but kind of a, a fascinating artist in that he was somewhat croony, but very country. He's got that yodeling thing going yep, on. Yep. He, he was known for that. He was known for this skill in yodeling and you hear it in I Remember You which was number eight that week then I will tell them I remember you I remember too a distant bell and stars that fell just like the rain out of the blue He had another hit, Lovesick Blues, which we'll talk about later. It was a cover of Hank Williams. And wow, did he show off his yodeling skills there. But that was his trademark. And as you said, Ed, he was very popular uh, at this time in both America and Britain. That's one thing to note. I mean, he was on the charts during these weeks in both countries. He was one of the few British artists to actually make his way over to the States. There's a reason why when VJ was trying to exploit the Beatles, who did they pair him with? They paired him with Frank Ifield. Well, technically what you've got here with this song, I Remember You, and the one that Kit mentioned, Lovesick Blues, you've got consecutive number one singles as well, which shows you exactly how big of an act he was. Absolutely. So I Remember You is not a Frank Ifield song. It was written in 1942 and was in a film, a Dorothy L'Amour film called The Fleet's Inn. I think Johnny Mercer may have uh, written it, as I recall. Johnny Mercer wrote the lyrics. Yeah. We mentioned this because, well, Paul also did I Remember You at the Star Club. the whole thing we only have like a minute and a half of it i believe that must have been either under duress or because paul had had a a few too many (laughs) if you're listening paul can you do a re-recording for us (laughs) i wouldn't mind hearing contemporary paul doing i remember you yeah might be kind of interesting well it may have been under duress but also it was a popular song i mean obviously look at this i mean they're very clearly doing a jokey version of it but it's still well performed and it actually sounds well i prefer the beatles version to the frank ifield version sorry frank (laughs) true and then at number 17 on the british chart reminiscing which was one of the posthumous buddy holly songs 
Yeah, and it goes without saying, uh, Buddy Holly had a tremendous impact on the Beatles. Gosh, who didn't he influence? I mean, just a legend. And uh, Beatles did cover reminiscing. They really knew how to interpret Buddy Holly's songs. I think they always did a great job. There's something else about Buddy Holly that I found interesting looking into him, actually. And um, I've got a, a passing interest in, in, in Buddy, to be honest, that comes from watching the Buddy Holly story film back in the days and being interested in it. And Buddy had this work ethic where this is why you've got so much material by him, because much like the Beatles, he was always recording and performing. And this wealth of material there for such a short period of time while he was actually active in the music industry it's amazing the wealth of material that's there. Buddy Holly and John Lennon were pretty much the proverbial brothers from another mother. Mm-hmm. You know, they were the same sorts of guys in a lot of ways. You go and we listen to all of John's Dakota demos. Well, and the fact that Free as a Bird became a finished record, it's all Buddy Holly redux in a lot of ways. And that's a real good point, Martin, because tragically he had such a short career. But yeah, I mean, he did record so much, but he was constantly writing and was ahead of his time, particularly in, you know, the sort of rhythms he used. His lyrics were clever. I can't say enough about Buddy Holly. I'm a fan, and I think that's a good way to put it, how he and John Lennon, their creativity were similar. And so it's no wonder that he had such a huge impact on the Beatles. So the the next record we want to talk about is Del Shannon. Del Shannon would quickly cover For Me to You, well, after the Beatles wrote it, of course. Yep. So is this number 42, Swiss Made? Uh, Yes. I don't remember this song. I'm sorry. I don't either. One time, a long time ago, on a mountain in Switzerland, yo la 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 There lived a fair young maiden Lovely but lonely, yo-ho-ho Yeah, this was a mystery. I don't remember it either. A big hit in the UK, but I don't remember it at all. Yeah, and of course, Del Shannon, well-known, I mean, his early 60s stuff. Which, by the way, still holds up. Del Shannon's stuff, I think, on the whole kind of rises above much of early 60s pop. It really does. Uh, Runaway, obviously, is the most well-known. Yeah, his next record, Little Town Flirt, that's another one that we remember real well. Yes. There was a rumor at one point that Del Shannon very nearly joined the Traveling Wilburys after Roy Orbison passed away. They've denied that, but there is no doubt that Tom Petty and George and Jeff Lynne were playing around with Del Shannon at the time. Oh, okay. And the Wilburys did that version of Runaways. As I walk along, I wonder what went wrong with love, love that was so strong. Yeah, so clearly George was impacted by him and remembered him fondly. Well, and and why wouldn't he? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Del Shannon was George Harrison's kind of guitar player. Yes. 
not let's play as many notes as we can is play to the tune. Exactly. Yeah. So that makes sense that he would feel drawn to him and feel a kinship. That's true. Oh, and of course, it's not the only Del Shannon one on. I've skipped past number 34, Cry Myself to Sleep. That was actually twice there in the charts. The early 60s was definitely his real peak. Kind of after For Me to You, he would just live off of his earlier material. Yeah. I mean, he kept releasing singles, but in terms of chart success, this was his peak. Because, of course, at 35, you've got George Harrison's brother. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us, Martin. Wasn't there a story or something where George Harrison would actually say that he was the brother of Joe Brown occasionally? Occasionally, yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Joe Brown. And, you know, this is another reason that being a Beatles fan is great. You know, you get to learn about artists that, you know, in America, you don't really know anything about. I mean, Joe Brown really didn't, you know, impact the States that much. So it's really great when you get to learn about, you know, artists like Joe Brown, because he he just didn't make an impact here for whatever reason. Well, I mean, a lot of people learned about Joe Brown from the concert for George. Which That's, that was is, me. Yeah. It's being re-released, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's in theaters for the 20th anniversary of the show, and there is actually now going to be a surround version coming wow. uh, from uh, SDE, the Super Deluxe Editions, folks. Nice. Get my speaker set up. <laughs> there you go. Actually, one of my favorite bits about the concert for George, the Joe Brown section, where he does, uh, you know, uh, the George song, and then he does I'll See You in My Dreams. I mean, beautiful bits by Joe in that. Oh, that last part. Yeah, when he did I'll See You in My Dreams, I mean, I that was it. That was it for me. I, I, I held it together pretty well. And then that, when he did that, that was it. I just, you know, the tears flowed. Look, damn, look, damn for, you, Joe. look for the Kiddo Tool show with Lonnie Penny and I from several years ago. Yes. <laughs> you reviewed it the last time they re-released it. That's right. Yeah. Plug, plug. <laughs> plug, plug, plug. All right. So we talk about weird artists. Ackerbilk. <laughs> oh, Ackerbilk. Yes. This is a really good example of the kind of music that was on the charts before the Beatles came along. Because once the Beatles hit and then the British invasion hit, Bilk's career, well, at least on the charts, went downhill. You know, <laughs> I mean, it really did. But instrumental, you know, he was a clarinetist, very pleasant, instrumental, stranger on, on the shore. And you can just imagine, uh, shall we say, the older generation thoroughly enjoying this song. And... It was at a time when songs like this were still hits. Flash forward years later, and when I think Mick Jagger was inducting the Beatles in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he made a joke about this song and about Ackerbilk. I guess he joked about it offstage with George Harrison, and then he said it on stage. During those very early days, just while the Beatles were recording their first songs. It was a real wasteland. England had nothing really to offer as far as pop music was concerned. The big hits here that came from England were things like Acker Bilk, Stranger on the Shore. This was what they thought of in England. A Midnight in Moscow by Kenny Ball. Now we all remember that one. 
Ooh. Apologies to my granddad who loved this song. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, it was a hit. I mean, it was number one. I forget how many weeks. It was on the charts in the UK for over a year. Yeah. It was a classic, and he had a long career. But, you know, it's just amazing. Once the Beatles hit and then the other British Invasion bands, songs like this just kind of disappeared, at least from the top of the charts. And then Acker would get a little bit desperate and try and cover Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. I believe he has a whole album out of Acker doing Beatles covers. Yep, exactly. So no offense to your granddad. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the tape with the Beatles album that he did. You're kidding. Oh, the Acker bill? No, my granddad actually, I got it when he passed away. I got it as part of his collection. Oh, wow. I bet it's a banger. Goes out to this selection with what is my favorite of the it's a small world and it's really weird. The Spotniks are on the chart during this week. Uh, the Spotniks is a foreign band, but two years later, the newest member of the Spotniks would be one Jimmy Nickel. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Wow. <laughs> He'd always said, oh, maybe the Beatles will kick Ringo out and, and make me their new drummer. Well, that didn't happen, but <laughs> the Spotniks kicked their drummer out and hired Jimmy. Yep. More Dingo than Ringo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those weird connections. And that's what we're doing here. And I bet we'll find many more weird connections, I'm sure. I was going to say, don't forget, at number 48, you've got a new entry by Mr. Little Richard, who the Beatles actually shared a stage with in uh, Hamburg. Right about the same time. A Liverpool show, and they did a residency in Germany. Absolutely. All right, so before we move on to the American charts, this show is being sponsored by Bruce Ferber and his publishing company. He has a new book called I Buried Paul. It's not actually about Paul McCartney and the infamous death rumor. None of the characters in this book are actual Beatles, but many portray them in tribute bands, some with names like the Brian Epstein Massacre and the Dr. Roberts, made up entirely of MDs. You know, that also goes well with some of these other acts that we're talking about that were on the charts at the time. You know, they had to come up with names and you just never knew what was going on. Indeed. The book's protagonist is a club musician named Jimmy Koslowski, the longstanding Paul McCartney of Long Island band Help. Jimmy's in a bit of a boots-and-suits rut. He's happy to perform the greatest rock and roll ever written, but is still chasing the dream of succeeding with his own original material. Again, like many of these people that we're talking about. He also works a straight job, entertains at a nursing home, and yearns to connect with the daughter he's never met. Anyone who's ever been a musician or thought they wanted to be one, that's me, uh, will recognize some of themselves in this story. As George Harrison described it many years ago, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. 
I Buried Paul is a love letter to the power of music, a funny and moving exploration of the sacrifices people make in service to its magic. It's a great stocking stuffer for the holidays, and if it's a virtual stocking you're stuffing, check out the Kindle special for only $4.99. All right, there you go. So uh, it really is a good book. Uh, we've had Bruce on when they was fab, and he's a big Beatles fan. He's what I would call sort of a more normal Beatles fan, but I think he will also be interested and learn some things from what we're talking about here. It's a deep dive without being quite so painful. Excellent. All right, so we move on to the American charts. The American charts in October of 62, uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> there were fewer Beatles connections, and, and a lot of them were much more tenuous. It's, well, let's dive into it and talk about it. To the higher end of the chart, we start with Booker T and the MGs with Green Onions. That was a favorite song all across Britain, and that would be one of the Beatles' favorite songs. It's one of the reasons why they would consider recording at stacks. And, well, there's the better-left-forgotten outtake 12-bar original, which is Green Onions, but worse. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, Green Onions, I was just going to say, now we're talking. That is a great song by an incredible band, Booker T and the MGs. Basically, the became the house band at Stax. They were really forerunners in Southern Soul. Good point about 12-bar original. That kind of was their, <laughs> their version of Booker T. And I think it's another example. I mean, how the Beatles were definitely influenced by R&B, and, uh, and Booker T and the MGs were part of that. And, of course, years later, Booker T and the MGs would repay the favor of the Beatles' um, admiration by recording their own tribute uh, to uh, really a, a very cool tribute to the Beatles called One More Avenue, referring to uh, the street that Stax was on. And really, uh, really cool album. If you want to hear some R&B interpretations uh, of the Beatles. So, yeah, when I saw Green Onions was on the list, I thought, okay, now we're getting somewhere. And, you know, George and Paul have both frequently commented on how big fans they were. I mean, when that show, when George was on with Michael Jackson on uh, the BBC, mm -hmm. they talk about Booker T and the MGs a bit. That's right. I forgot about that. All right. At number six was uh, He's a Rebel by the Crystals. All right, Martin, tell us about the scandal surrounding this. So, He's a Rebel is uh, credited to the Crystals, but actually the scandal behind it is that it's it's actually it was recorded by the Blossoms, whose lead singer was Mrs. Christmas herself, uh, Darlene Love. But yet, apparently, the, the Crystals were a better-selling group and the, the Blossoms weren't that known officially. So, because they'd already had a hit single, number one, they decided to actually attribute it to the Crystals as opposed to the Blossoms. Wow. Well, and obviously it did help its position in the chart here, apparently. Mm. Yeah, there you go. It's our exclusive. <laughs> Not a huge Beatles connection. Beatles would cover other songs by the Crystals, but it's worth taking note of here. And, of course, the Beatles were hugely influenced by girl groups. And, and you know, In general, perfect, yes. Yeah, perfect example. Was it produced by Phil Spector? Uh, it was indeed. That's another connection. 
All right, at number 11 was I Remember You by Frank Ifield, again, which we already spoke of, but just to show you, it was high up in the charts on both countries at that point in time. Yes, indeed. He was popular in both countries. Number 23, we have one of Paul McCartney's good friends, Tony Bennett, with what has to be one of his biggest hits, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. It's kind of weird to think that that was towards the higher end of the charts in 1962, it just seems like sort of a 50 song with the whole Sinatra and Dean Martin thing. Oh, yeah. And, and this this became his signature song. It does sound like it you know, should date more from the 50s. But yeah, this absolutely became the signature song. I've seen him in concert many times, saw him perform this, and just a gorgeous song. And as we know, Paul in particular is a fan of Standards Got to Sing with Tony. And And they did a duet together. Yes, they did. The very thought of you. What can you say about Tony Bennett? Just a class act, uh, an incredible singer, master stylist. Anything on Tony Bennett, Martin? He did a very good Christmas album, which is coming up very soon, (laughs) by the way, Christmas. That is a good album. (laughs) All right. At number 61, a different Elvis record, a much better Elvis record, but one that the Beatles were not all that impressed with, uh, Return to Sender. It's at least one we remember, you know? I've always liked Return to Sender. Really? The Beatles didn't like it? They thought it was old hat, which it was. I mean, I I guess it's a little, I mean, the lyrics are a little, I don't know if corny is the right word, but, you know, but I, I, I... Always thought it was at least it's more memorable. <laughs> this is true. I I don't think any I've ever heard any of them ever cover it, even in jest. It's not part of the get back session, so you know mm-hmm. that, that kind of tells you how much it stuck with them. Yeah, I remember it being shoved down my throat on oldies radio. Oh yeah, that's true. It was played on oldies radio a lot. I mean, you know, during the eighties into the early nineties when there still was an oldies radio. Yep. For whatever reason, this was one that they loved to play frequently. Good point. I think it's one of the better croon-style songs by Elvis, for sure. Well, well, certainly better than She's Not You, so... (laughs) Still can't remember that one. Yeah, I know. You'll know it when you hear it. Like it's Again, it's one of those you you start hearing like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard this before. But yeah, Return to Sender, much more memorable. And then stretching the definition of tenuous, at number 84, we've got I'll Remember Carol by Tommy Boyce. Now, Tommy Boyce would later become half of Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, famous from Bewitched and half a million other 60s TV shows, not to mention one of these significant songwriting teams behind the monkeys. Yeah, this was a very interesting song to listen to. I'd never heard this uh, before, I'll Remember Carol. I heard a boy told her lies just to win her heart. So she made a vow someday, somehow, that she, she'd break somebody's heart. But I loved her so, I remember Carol. I remember her so well. It's also fascinating to listen to because you can hear how Tommy Boyce and Boyce and Hart changed their style over time. Obviously, when they were writing for the monkeys, much more of a you know rock influence. And at this point, I mean, this is very much in the Paul Anka, Neil Sedaka kind of sound. 
you know, Brill Building kind of stuff, which makes sense because, you know, that would be that would be the popular sound of this time. I don't think it's a particularly memorable song. Well, that's why I say we're, we're stretching tenuous here, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's definitely a tight Beatles monkeys connection. Yes. And when you talk about, you know, monkeys and, and of course you, you know, last train to Clarksville, which uh, was Boyce and Hart stealing paperback writer. Yeah, that is very true. But, but it's, again, it's really interesting to listen to because you can, again, hear how taste changed over just a few years, you well, know, just a few months. I mean, yeah. we're talking about October of 62 by December we're going to start to see, as we will discuss, Motown coming in. And by mid-63, you got the Beach Boys starting to take over in the U.S. And you've got, you know, just the Beatles just running down the whole charts in Britain. Right. Yep. So this sound would, would quickly <laughs> fade away. Yeah, that, I, I, I like your point. You know, that's it's a very interesting point that the, the crooners and sort of the end of the 50s here was like what's going on oh this is what's going on it was almost the throwback we have no new ideas yep exactly in essence it's almost like a transitional period like you will have later on when when you get the change from from the rock to the punk and then from the punk to the new wave in so many years to come this is another transition where you're going from that period where it is the crooner that's in the main and the the instrumentals because you, you know we we've, we've bypassed the fact that you've got the on the british charts you've got the shadows who were were an instrumental group as well right and it's the transition from from one style of music being the predominant to another and then you, you would constantly get a lot of this during the next um, you know 8 to 10 years yeah good point i mean this is sort of the quiet before the storm you know <laughs> and and things were already starting to happen on the british side i mean you you look at the british charts i mean acrobilk aside you could see that things were starting to change the british were more hip than we were yep we we're squares absolutely <laughs> <laughs> strictly l7 man but very soon you'll get around that's right (laughs) all right and then to close out the month of october of 1962 at number 99 getting ready to fall out of the charts it had been at number uh, 68 and 64 the previous two weeks twist and shout by the isley brothers this had a little impact on on the beatles i would say a little bit (laughs) yeah i mean the isley brothers still love them this was just you know one of their earliest songs and they would change their style a lot from this i mean this had you know we were talking about chris montez earlier i mean this had a latin flavor to it you know really uh, interesting and they would change a lot after this but obviously as we all know the beatles would cover this and became one of their signature uh songs and, and would greatly reimagine the song i mean that's another thing you know really showed how the beatles could you know, we're so good at taking a song and making it their own. And boy, did they ever <laughs> with Twist and Shout. Uh, but it also shows how, you know, how much they loved r and And the other thing, you know, we're looking at the end of October 62. The Beatles would make it their own by the 1st of 63. So we're, we're talking about a contemporary song that they recognized. And, you know, even though it was a, a hit, I mean, it was certainly on the charts, there is no absolute reason for them to have chosen that song 
other than they recognize, hey, wait a minute, this is something we can do and we can do well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, they really rearranged it and they knew its smash hit potential, but knew how to rearrange it in a way that, as you said, worked for them, but also that it would catch the ears of a pop audience. All right, so that's October 62. Interesting bit of trivia, interesting group of songs here. And so, I mean, Love Me Do is certainly one of the winners out of these batch of songs. Uh, You know, we got a couple of good songs, and Chris Montez and and Sheila's actually a good song, and Twist and Shout. But you got to say that there's no putting down Love Me Do amongst these songs. It's amongst the best here. Yeah, it definitely stands out. That's for sure. Absolutely. All right. We will be back soon with uh, November of 1962. And, you know, you may be asking, why are we doing this monthly? We're doing this monthly because, you know, the charts changed from week to week. And we did certainly have some artists which entered and moved in and out. But monthly seems to be a good pace because you get enough new artists coming in that we can talk about different things and different songs during the show. Exactly. Otherwise, it could get kind of repetitive, you know, if we just went week by week. And, of course, the big long-standing hits will manage to run across shows. For example, as we now know, looking forward, Please Please Me comes out in January, and it will be in the charts for at least the next three shows, January, February, March. Love Me Do will last through November and December, and, you know, we'll we'll have some uh, random comments on Love Me Do, but we will center on a different song and a different artist each week with the idea being that the new Beatles songs as they come out will be our main center of focus up front. Absolutely. And we, we have to apologize that because, you know, we, we can't go into every single area, for instance, you know, should we say the also runs you've got Ellen Shapiro, who was sort of linked to the Beatles. And then you've got other people like uh, Kenny Lynch and Cliff Richard and all these other people. But we would need a show that's around three to four hours in length <laughs> to be able to go into all of these areas. Well, and Carol King, you know, she was also in, in the charts right around here. Yes. And the other thing is, as we move forward, a lot of these artists will have other songs and we will have opportunities to talk about them. Exactly. So, all right. Very good. This has been October 62 toppermost of the poppermost. See y'all next time. Bye. Bye. Casey Kasem, and I'm all set to count down the most popular songs in the USA. These are the records you're buying and radio stations are playing all over America. And how do I know? Because Billboard magazine says so. And the Beatles, they hold the record among groups for the most top 10 hits in chart history. 33 of them. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the top rank records. Remember when top rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that. They must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought how stupid that is.
How stupid is it's one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Topper most of the poppermost. 